Acts 20, verse 17. If you've got a pew Bible, it's page 1117. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which He bought with His own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed that by that kind of hard work, uh, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus Himself, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When He had said this, He knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced Him and kissed Him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this reading from his word. Well, that has prepared us wonderfully to come to the word. So please do open with me your Bibles to Acts chapter 20 today as we continue our series in Acts. Acts chapter 20, and we're going to think from verse 17 through to the end. And here's Here's where we're going today. Here's, here's why this passage is important for us. The gospel-centered church will have people who live gospel-centered lives, and it will have gospel-centered leaders. Really simple. The gospel-centered church, the church that we all want to be, we want to be part of a gospel-centered church. The gospel-centered church will have people who live gospel-centered lives, and it will have gospel-centered leaders. And why is this important for us today? It's important for us because the health, the spiritual health of our local church of Hill Street rises and falls with the health of the leaders, with the health of the elders. The health of this congregation will rise 
and will fall on the spiritual health of her leaders. And so if you want to find out if a congregation is spiritually healthy or not, all you need to do is speak to the elders and you'll find out. Do they value prayer? Are they gospel-centered? Are they passionate about exalting Jesus? Have they the spiritual needs of the congregation front and center? You see, the leadership of a church cannot be divorced from the church herself because this morning as we start to zoom in on this passage, you may think to yourself, well, this is only for the elders. This is only for the the 15 men that appeared on the screen behind us during the kids' address or for those who potentially are going to come into eldership. And it's not really to do about us. But what we got to understand is that our, our elders come from amongst us. And so the actual health of our congregation from that position will spring our elders. And so this is very relevant for us as a whole church. The leadership of the church and the church herself cannot be divorced from one another. And so the things that the congregation values are the things that the eldership will value. If Jesus means little to the congregation, then likely he will mean little to the elders. If the gospel isn't the joy of the church family as they come along and meet, well, then it won't be the joy of the elders. If the congregation are not passionate about reaching out with the good news of the gospel to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ, if they're not confident that the gospel is the power unto salvation, well, then it won't be the priority of the elders or the conviction of the elders. You see, the health of the leadership in the church shows the health of the people in the church. Now, we could, we could focus on this for a moment or two, but time's not going to allow us. But let's just say this in passing, a little word about church membership. The context of Acts chapter 20 is clear. The church membership is a biblical principle. And not to join the church actually hampers the leaders from exercising the very essence of their role. And so to refuse to join a church is to be like a sheep who separates themselves from the flock, who who walks alongside the flock, who comes close to the flock, but yet separates themselves who are aloof and outside of the care of the shepherds. So let's take this for granted that actual church membership is a biblical principle, and, and for there to be elders, for there to be overseers, then there must be members of the church. Now, we could spend a long time on that. We could spend a a full sermon looking at membership, but I just want to note that. And if you have questions about that or or something that you want to ask in regards to it, please do come and speak to myself or speak to Nigel or one of the other elders as we think about this. And as we talk about elders and as we are going to dive into it, it's maybe helpful for us to recognize there's a distinction. So, Nigel and myself are elders here in this church. We are teaching elders, and then the men that appeared on the screen there are the ruling elders. So we have 15 ruling elders and two teaching elders here at Hill Street. Now, as we think about the, the, the gospel life of our congregation, what do we want to see? We want to see two things here this morning. And the first is going to come from verses 17 through to 27. So from verse 17 through to verse 27, and it's really the gospel-centered life, the gospel-centered life. Now, how do we learn best? Well, we learn best whenever we serve apprenticeships, don't we? 
We work alongside and under the experienced old hand, or if we were out in the building site, owl hand. We come alongside. I don't know if that's what happened in the assistantship, and not pass any comment on that, but we learn from someone who's done more time than ourselves. We do our time, we make our mistakes, we watch, and we learn. And then we try it. We don't get it right. And we reflect. And we remind ourselves of the basics, and then we watch and we try again, and we try again, and we try again. One of my dad's friends, he's a builder, and he said he was out on the building site with his father, and he built one of his first walls, and he thought he'd done a wonderful job. He stood back and he looked at the wall, thought it was great, and his dad came up and pushed it over. He said, that wall's useless, start again, okay? So that's kind of what it's like in, in an apprenticeship. It's kind of what it's like for us as Christians as we, as we come to know Jesus for the first time, as we start out on this road of discipleship, we're, we're, we're trying, we're, we're trying to learn how to pray, we're trying to learn how to live, and, and we make mistakes along the way, and we have to keep our eyes on those who are further along the road than us. We come alongside them, we ask them, look, this is difficult, how do you do it? Whenever it comes to this part of my life, how, how do I grow in this as a Christian? Will, will you help me? Will you come alongside me? And what Paul does here, look at, look at verse 17. He calls to Miletus, and he sends for the elders. He, he can't send for everyone to come to him, so he, he sends for the elders, for the church leadership team to come to him. And then he reflects on his life. He, he shows them his example, doesn't he? Paul reminds the elders and then also by deduction the church family, because they will go back and tell this to them, what the gospel-centered life looks like. So, verse 18, look at all the things that Paul lays out for us. Verse 18, what does he do? He lives among the people. He's not separate or aloof. He's not up in some ivory tower away from all the people that he was ministering to. He's with the people. He's on the ground. Verse 19, what does he do? He's living with the people. He's then serving with humility. I don't know if they had chairs in Miletus, but Paul's not afraid to put out chairs or to stack chairs or to help. He's serving with humility alongside the people in the congregation. And look at verse 19. It's not, it's not just the surface level serving, but it's all of himself. It's, it's his emotional center. It's his very heart. Because in verse 19, what do we see? That he, he serves with them with tears. He's a, Paul's a hard man, beaten up and ridiculed and flogged and shipwrecked. And he serves in the church with tears. He cries alongside the people as they follow Jesus together, as they walk through the trials of life together. And look at verse 20. Then he doesn't shrink back. He pushes on with the gospel. Paul embodies in, in this passage for the elders and tells them and sh has shown them what it means to live the gospel-shaped life. His words and his actions match up. He loves Jesus. Passionate about Jesus. Passionate about the gospel. And so look at verse 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. That's all he cares about. In everything that he's doing, that's all he cares about is Jesus. 
to, to tell people about Jesus, to, to show people Jesus, whether he's, he's working or serving alongside them, whether he's in the marketplace, whether he's in someone's home eating with them, whatever he's doing, he's, he's passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ. And to do what? Not to promote himself, not to make the, the gospel all about social action, but verse 24, to testify to the gospel of grace, the grace of God. If you met Paul, you're sure to hear about the grace of God, what the Lord had done for him, how he changed his life. He's like one of those people that you meet, and they're just a wonderful storyteller. Someone who'll tell you very quickly about Jesus, what he's been doing in their life. This is gospel-centered living. This is gospel-centered ministry. Jesus and His grace constantly on our lips as a congregation. And what else would we expect? If Jesus is the Son of God, if He has rescued us by taking the wrath, the wrath of a holy God upon Himself on the cross, if He has made atonement for our sins, if He's defeated death and Satan and sin, and He has rose again from the dead, and if He promises to give us eternal life with Him forever on the new earth, and He gives us value and purpose and meaning, then surely we should live our lives for Him. Surely every congregation should be a gospel-marked congregation. In fact, those two terms are almost opposite terms. There should be no other type of congregation other than a gospel-centered one with people who live gospel-centered lives. Now, you might say to me, John, the, the office of apostle has ended. That was good for Paul. And you're right, it has. The apostle's office has ceased. But what is he telling his apprentices? He's showing them the gospel. So, verse 19, serve with me. You serve with humility. And then go back to your congregation and encourage in them a culture where they serve with humility. Verse 20, don't you shrink back from proclaiming the Word of God and go back to your congregation so they won't shrink back from proclaiming the Word of God. Gospel leaders, elders, understand this, that your congregation will follow your leadership. The things that you prioritize will be their priority. So if you prioritize just coming along and having a nice little meeting house so that we can have a nice little club together and there's nothing about Jesus Christ, then Paul says you have misunderstood the whole thing. This is all about God's grace. And so we come along here this morning and, and we turn our eyes to Jesus, what He has done for us. And we hear our, our prayers about what Jesus has done and, and the forgiveness that we've enjoyed, and we sing His praise. That's what it's all about. Living, serving, crying, not shrinking back, boldness, an appetite for the gospel, an appetite to see souls saved. This is gospel-centered living. Then the gospel-centered leader. Verses 26 through to 32, the gospel-centered leader. If Paul has been broad here to begin with, broad in his application, broad in his experience, well, it's as if he's the CEO of the company, and he's been talking about the ethos of the company and the culture of the company, and now he narrows in to talk about the specific role 
the specific role of, if you like, the director in the company. Here he, he zooms in on the elder. And this is where our text turns, the, the, the note of it turns slightly, the, the mood of the text turns, it becomes much more serious. And so verses 26 and 27, therefore, see the, the, the movement in the text, there's a, there's a transition point, the therefore Brexit, therefore, verse 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. To, to understand this, to understand the seriousness of this, I want you to come with me into the Old Testament. And I want you to turn back to the book of Ezekiel. And, and so, this, this will be helpful for us. If you come with me, come with me back. You'll have Jeremiah and Lamentations, and then you will be into Ezekiel. It's a, it's a, big, a big book just before Daniel, should be able to find it. Ezekiel 33. <clears throat> Ezekiel 33. And this is, this is what Paul's leaning on. He's leaning on this very image. This is why I want us to look at it, the seriousness of this image. We did mention this a couple of weeks ago in chapter 18 as well, but I think it's good for us to read this again this morning. So I, I'm going to read from the, the ESV. Ezekiel 33, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land and a people of the land, take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. Now, verse 6, but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes away one of them. That person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. See the responsibility of the watchman? To sound the trumpet, and if the people don't respond, well then their blood is on their own heads. But if the watchman should see the sword coming and refuses, rejects his his rule does not sound the trumpet, then, then the Lord says, I will require the blood of the watchman. It will be upon his head. And that's what Paul's saying here to the elders, verse 26 and verse 27. For those who are in eldership, he says, look, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of you all. Why? Because I've proclaimed to you the good news of the gospel. I have told you about your position. that each of you are born into sin. Each man and woman and child are born into sin. And without Christ, you go into an eternity facing judgment. If you should die in your sin, that you will go to a place that is called hell, and you'll be separated from the Lord forever. 
I have declared to you, says Paul. I have declared to you, and therefore I am innocent of this blood because he's told them that there's forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ, that there's grace to be found in Jesus, that there's power at the cross of Calvary to be found. And as we look to the empty tomb, that we see the risen Savior, and he says, trust him, believe in him. He's the way and the truth and the life. Watch, man. You must speak the entire counsel of God, ensuring that people know the situation in which they find themselves. And if people remain unrepentant, well, then their blood is on their own heads. And so there are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts in gospel ministry and gospel leadership and the eldership. There are no wee stories that we like to tell. There's no airbrushing of the gospel. What do we want to ensure in this place from the eldership team is that we preach the infallible Word of God. And woe to us, woe to Nigel and woe to myself if we do not preach the gospel, woe to each one of the ruling elders if we do not prioritize the preaching of the gospel in this place, telling people about the grace of God. Verse 27, for I did not shrink back. What does that imply? It implies that it's easy to shrink back. It's the tempting thing to do. It's far easier to get up and do a 10-minute little thought for the week, isn't it? It's far easier to get up and just give some nice little stories and funny illustrations and to tell people that everything's going to be okay and not to talk about sin or death or Satan or the judgment. It's easier to do those things. Paul says, it would be easier to shrink back, but I did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. What did he do? He poured out his life to plead with men and to plead with women, to plead with young people. He had been a watchman. And that's what we need, isn't it? Ministers and elders that will declare the whole counsel of God, how glorious and majestic all-powerful and how saving our God is. Elders who will not shrink back from declaring the splendor of Jesus Christ in all of His beauty, telling us about how He is prophet and priest and king, how He works justification for us, how He is the atoning sacrifice that we need, His humiliation and His exaltation, His love and His grace and His power, how He comes from heaven to save His bride. That's what we need in the church, isn't it? We don't want anything else. We don't want any gimmicks. What do we need as we come along here week after week? We need to hear about our King. And so, brothers, as elders, you're watchmen. And either you have the blood of people on your hands or you don't. Look at verse 28 then. Paul moves and he says, Keep a watch on yourselves. Elders, keep an eye on your lives. Here's what Calvin says about this very verse. He says, if someone neglects, talking about the elder, if someone neglects his own salvation, he will never care about other people's. In vain will the person who shows no desire for godliness urge others to live godly lives. And isn't it interesting what Paul starts with? He doesn't say, elders, first of all, watch over the flock. He says, watch yourselves. It's character first before competencies. It's your own holiness first 
Your holiness as an elder is crucial. How many elders are consumed with tasks and they never pause to check their own spiritual health? They never pause to check their own life. Busy about the work, but not on their own heart. Song of Solomon 1 and 6. Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Chapter 1, verse 6. Here's what it says. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. He goes around, this picture is in Song of Songs, that he goes around and, and he looks at everybody else's vineyard. He's the, he's the vineyard inspector. And then all the, the local vineyard men say, well, sure, sure, we'll come and look at your vineyard. Let us see, let's see the expert's vineyard. And as they arrive at the farm, what do they see? That all is willard. They have made me a keeper of the vineyards, but I did not keep my own. No time to sit and to enjoy Jesus. No time to pray, to prioritize holiness. Now, similarly, the opposite is true. Elders can be inactive, can't they? They can sit and, and do nothing. So that's why he moves on so quickly. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. And the word here is for to pastor sheep. That's what it is. It's really to pastor sheep. Under the supreme shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, elders, you are under shepherds, and therefore you're with your sheep. You know your sheep. This should be the expectation of the, of the sheep, that the shepherd will know them, will know their names, will know their lives, will know how to care for them, will know all of their ailments, so that the, the shepherd knows the spiritual health of the flock. And then be warned, verse 29, wolves will come. Wolves will come from among you, not from outside, from among your very number. Verse 30, people from our own number will come and will speak twisted things. And so, elders in this church, you got to know that you are not looking after sheep in the soft play area of the world. You're looking after sheep and it's not all sunshine and lollipops. This is demanding work. It's dangerous work. It's daunting work. There are wolves who want to come and to devour us from within our very own number. People who will sit amongst the visible church, who will come along and who will worship week after week. And what are they bent on? They're bent on destroying God's people. This isn't the agenda of the world. This is people within our very meeting. And so Paul says discipline will have to be exercised for the protection of the flock. And that's theological, it's moral, it's social. There are people who will seek to destroy the bride of Christ. So elders, church members, if there is sin in our midst, we don't cover it up. We don't pass it off as if it's all going to be okay. Brush it under the carpet and no one will ever know about it. If there's sin, what does the Bible call us to do? It says, walk into the light, bring it into the light. Confess your sin to one another. We could go through a hundred different things that would destroy a church family, but just some, a gossip within the church family. If we hear it, do we call it out? If there's grumbling, do we deal with it? 
elders in particular, you are watchmen, you are pastors of the sheep, so be on your guard. Look at verse 31, be alert. And how do we combat this? How do we, how do we, go again? How do we start to watch ourselves well? How do elders do this well? Well, Paul says, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. What's he doing? He's warning, he's advising, he's counseling, he's reproving with the gospel, and he's not taking delight in doing that. He's doing it with tears. He's crying with people along the road. As sin comes to light, he's crying with them. As difficult conversations have to be had, he's not doing it with joy, taking great delight in it. He's doing it with tears, seeking the holiness of the church, seeking the glory of Jesus Christ in this church. And if the responsibility wasn't heavy enough, well then, we got to listen to this. Look at verse 28. Who are elders appointed by? Elders are appointed by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we forget this, especially as we are in the, in the face of an election. We think that the power rests with us. The Holy Spirit, verse 28, appoints you. This is no earthly task. This is a supernatural task. Because here's the thing. If, if they were appointed, if elders were appointed by men, they would only be responsible to men. But they're appointed by the Holy Spirit, and therefore they're responsible to God. So what we want to know here today is that we do not view the eldership as a rite of passage. Because their father or their grandfather was an elder, so they too have to be an elder. That is nonsense. Or will they seem to be here every Sunday, so we'll nominate them. Or I know their mother or their father or their family friends of ours, or they seem to be a nice man. That is not the questions that we should ask. The question that we should ask Paul says, is who is the Holy Spirit raising up? Who's the, who's the Holy Spirit working in? Whose life can we see the Holy Spirit actively raising up in our church to become a, 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 an elder? And so how dare, how dare we turn it into a popularity contest? This is the work of the Holy Ghost, producing in men the character needed for the role of protecting and aiding and flourishing the bride of Christ. So don't take it lightly. Don't deal casually or carelessly with the eldership of the church, with the leadership of the church. Look at verse 28. Why is it so serious? Why is it so sobering? Well, because of verse 28. The church, the bride of Christ, was obtained how? By the very blood of our Savior. He obtained it with His own blood. The blood of God was spilt to do what? Shed on the cross to do what? To rescue the church. And so the church cost the Son of God His life, His very blood. And so forgive us if we should ever treat the church flippantly. This is no small thing. Christ died for her. And Christ cares more for His church than we ever will. He loves her and protects her, and He's passionate about her health. That's why this passage is so serious for us. Our time's gone. We could 
We could spend so much time on even just that one verse, but do we see this this morning? Do we see how Christ views His church, the beauty of His church, how, how gospel-centered lives from each one of us as congregational members is so important, how, how the gospel-centered leadership team is so important? How do, we, uh, how do we apply this? Well, hopefully we've been doing that along the way. There are many challenges here. If, if you're not a Christian this morning, I, I trust that you hear about how Christ has died for the church, for this church family. How the Son of God shed His blood. And hopefully as we have worshipped this morning, you have seen something beautiful amongst us. The worship of a holy God. And, and you think, I want to be part of that. Lord, I want to be part of How can I be part of that? Well, to trust Jesus and to repent of your sin is how you can be part of it. Come and be part of us is the call. And as we have held up a mirror to ourselves this morning as a church family, as we have seen the contours of our congregation, well, perhaps one of the things that we need to do to, this morning is to repent. Lord, we have prioritized the wrong things. We've got this wrong. As your apprentices, we have looked in the wrong places. We need to realign this morning. Or this is a drastic application. Perhaps as a congregation, some of us have nominated some people as elders, and our form's already in the box. And as we sit under the Word of God and the Holy Spirit does a work on us, maybe we're thinking to ourselves, actually, that's the wrong person that I have nominated. We'll write a letter and put it in the box and say, I'm sorry for my first application, the first people I've nominated. I actually want to withdraw that nomination. Here's the person that I think it should be. And for our elders, this has been a heavy sermon for you. The task is great. How do you go forward? Well, look at verse 36. For our elders, Paul knelt down, and what did he do? He prayed with all of these elders. And in verse 32, he says, I commend you to God, to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up. How do we respond this morning? We don't respond in saying, uh, well, well, oh, look at that elder, or look at him, and look at that, and look at this. Instead, what does Paul say? Commend our elders in prayer. Lift them up in prayer. Please lift us up in prayer. Lift Nigel and myself as teaching elders up. Lift our ruling elders up, the 15 men. Pray for them. Commend them to the Lord. Kneel with them and pray for them. Pray for their families. This should raise our prayer life this morning. It should fuel our prayer life as a church. That the Lord would raise up gospel-centered leaders here in this place, a church that is gospel-centered with gospel-centered membership, so that we can lift high Jesus and see loads of souls come to trust in Him as the Lord draws people into saving faith. That's our prayer. Lord, keep us spiritually healthy. Keep us centered on Your Son and on His glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you sent your Son into this earth to rescue his bride. And Jesus, as you hung upon the cross, you laid your life down 
with your bride in your eyes. It was love that held you there. It was love in your heart that made you come from the high throne of heaven to rescue us, the church. And so may we never deal lightly with your bride, Lord. Would we seek and search the Scriptures for how we should operate for our priorities. That each of us as members of this place would live gospel-shaped lives, and for each of our elders, we commend them to you, Lord, in prayer. Be with them. Encourage them. Bless them. Be unto them all that they need, and protect them, we pray. Lord, we love you in this place, and we want to love you more week after week, growing in our faith, growing in our worship, growing in our exaltation and our our glorifying of you. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.